0: My name is Anthony Hernandez. Obviously, I'm not Josh Watt, uh, who's our one and only pastor here. He's preaching at a different church, but um, like I said, I I was from Redemption Alhambra for many years. I was a deacon there. I led our First Impressions team, which uh, the Blackwells do here much better than I ever could. Um, But God had me on a pathway towards um, becoming a pastor at Alhambra, and then he opened the door here to North Mountain. And so Josh uh, was kind enough to invite me to come up and preach Uh, to you guys, uh, and I'm very, very excited about it. I'm excited to preach in Advent. I don't think I've ever preached during Christmas or Advent. Uh, I did youth ministry a number of years back, and I'm sure I preached during Christmas time, but I can't remember. Um, So I'm very, very excited about it. Um, And just to let you guys know, what I've seen, what I've observed, is that the 9 o'clock service is the hype train the 1045, can you work on it a little bit? If you guys are usually at the 1045, um, I'm going to have to wake them up a bit. But I'm depending on you guys. I don't get up here a whole lot, but one thing I know is I need some amens. If you want to stand on your chair, if you want to dance like David danced, you can do that. I'm going to need it. I'm going to need it. And uh, unlike Josh, I can't memorize my whole sermon. That's an an uncanny gift that he has. So I have a bunch of notes here. I hope you guys don't mind uh, working with me on this. But as uh, Caden, young Caden, who did so well, uh, read, we are in Matthew 1. I'm going to finish up the rest of the chapter. Josh started chapter 1, and we're going to stay in it throughout the rest of Advent. And if you're a note taker and you care about this sort of thing, I actually gave it my own title uh, so the title of my sermon is From Dark to Dark and Light to Light, Matthew 1:18 through 25. Now, before we dive in the passage, um, I want to do a little bit of a lens correction. I'm wearing contact lenses right now. I usually wear my, uh, my glasses, um, but um, I, take, I have a prescription. I get my vision tested about once a year, which I'm sure is probably pretty common. Getting your vision tested, but anyways, the, the doctor will have you sit in a chair, and he'll puff air in your eye, and then he'll dilate it. It's pretty much like a traumatic abuse that he, he does inflicts upon you. But at one point, he has you sit in a chair, and he puts your forehead up to this mark, and your this big contraption, the scary contraption, is up to your face, and you can see through these two tiny lenses across the wall, and you can see it's like big letters up top, and each line going down, it's smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, what he's trying to find is your prescription. So he'll flick through some of those lenses and then he'll say, okay, I need you to tell me which one is clear, A or B or one or two. And then he's flicking one lens to the next and you have to tell him. Eventually you find your prescription and you can see clearly. I remember when I first got my glasses, I didn't even know I had blurry vision because I'd never had glasses before. My mom took me. Doctor put me on that weird contraption. I got my first glasses, and I can see ants crawling on the ground for miles and miles. My vision was so clear. Well, here, so here's what I'm trying to do. Physical sight is one thing. It's very easy to correct that. But in life, we come to the table no matter what it is, whether it's a new relationship, whether it's going to school, whether it's a new job, or even coming to church on a Sunday and hearing someone preach. We have a certain amount of baggage we bring with us. And what that baggage does is it gives us a certain perspective on life. So when we hear someone talking or teaching about the word, we have that lens, we interpret everything that's said through those lenses that we already have. And for many of us, maybe even all of us, we have a hazy lens about things. Our prescription is a little off. So what I want to do as we prepare to go into the rest of Matthew 1 is I want to do a slight lens adjustment, a spiritual adjustment, our understanding of what Advent is and how we're going to perceive this passage. So here it is, a lens adjustment. Christmas is a light. It is not always a light, like Josh mentioned last week, by our personal experience. Some of us had some pretty tough Christmases, but by its intent, The intention of what we as a church celebrate for Christmas is intended to be a light. Christmas has, with all of its merry jolliness that I love, um, it has hijacked our understanding of Advent. A lot of people think of Advent as synonymous with Christmas. They hear Advent, they think Christmas, but that's not always the case. Christmas does play a part in Advent, but it's not necessarily equal to Advent. Um, If I were to paint a picture, it would be like people look at Christmas as a house. So imagine a big, nice mansion of a house. And then they hear Advent, and they think, okay, Advent must be the steps or the pathway that leads up to that house. And it's pretty simple why people think that way. It's because Advent is before Christmas on the calendar. So you see Advent first, and then you see Christmas. You think, oh, Christmas is the top of the mountain. Advent is the way up. But again, that is not the best way to look at things. Here's a good way to look at Christmas versus Advent. Christmas is a sweet moment in time. Again, not by our personal experience, but by its intent, It is intended to be a sweet moment of time. But Advent is remembering what has come before, what's gonna come ahead as we navigate the tensions of the in between now. For the poetic types in the room, I think the best way to describe it is, if Christmas is a star, Advent is a sky. Or if Christmas is an island, Advent is the ocean. As I was preparing for this sermon, I started to read this book called Advent by a woman named Fleming Rutledge. And if there is a name for an author, it's Fleming Rutledge, right? Could you imagine just having a newborn baby and looking upon her with love in your eye and say, Fleming, I, I feel like that's the name. But with the last name like Rutledge, it just works, right? Fleming Rutledge, it's like a prophecy. This kid's going to write a book. And lo and behold, Fleming Rutledge wrote many books. This woman is super, super sharp. She is brilliant. She's still alive today, kicking up dust for the Lord. Um, she has a lot to say about Advent. And I got to admit, when I was preparing for this, this sermon, and I started reading her stuff and, and learning from her, um, it really changed my perspective. This lens correction that I'm doing, she, she performed on me. And so, um, you know, that's why I wanted to do this. So when I was reading through this book, there was so many parts I was underlining and highlighting. Uh, I wanted to basically just jack her teachings and just preach them today. But I, there was one excerpt from that book, Advent, that I wanted to, to take and share with you in order to perform this little lens adjustment that we're doing. So this is what she has to say about Advent. It's, talking about Advent, superficially understood as a time to get ready for Christmas. But in truth, it's a season for contemplating the judgment of God. Advent is a season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. This next line is my favorite line. Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light, but the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. As our Lord tells us, Lord Jesus tells us, unless we see the light of God clearly, what we call light is actually darkness. And she quotes scripture by saying, how great is that darkness? She ends with this, Advent bids us take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. So if I were to sum up this lens correction in a phrase, as we prepare to dive in the first chapter of Matthew or or end that chapter, here it is. Here's my point. Christmas is a light, but Advent begins in the dark. Let's pray, and we'll dive into Matthew. Father, you are a good God and a holy God who loves us. You have given us a gift that we don't fully understand or appreciate, but by your grace, you give and you give some more. And in this text, God, I ask that you illuminate it for us, that you show us the truth of your word in such a way that it brings us all of us awe of you and that we would walk away giving you glory. That we would walk away knowing more about you and your love and all the things that you offer to us, all the amazing, beautiful, beautiful things. God, I'm thankful for you. We're thankful for you. Thank thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Okay, quick recap from last week. Josh preached through the genealogy. So the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter one, it's really just a bunch of names. I don't know how Josh did it. It's like pulling up a dictionary and just preaching through the dictionary. But I can tell you what, it is one of the best sermons I've ever heard. I can't believe that he took a bunch of names and preached a powerful sermon that I walked away convicted by. And I know I'm not the only one, I've talked to a bunch of people in my RC, which is our small group ministry. Um, in my RC, we talked a little bit about the sermon, and we were blown away. A lot of different um, new things that we learned. I'm not going to try to recap the whole uh, message that Josh preached. There was one part that stuck out to me. He was talking about going through the genealogy. He mentioned Bathsheba and Uriah, and he was talking about Their story in the Old Testament, people had a certain view of those characters, these people that experiencing these things during the the reign of King David. But the way Matthew described Bathsheba and Uriah was much different and the grace that God had on their lives. Essentially saying when it comes to the story of people and our lives and our identity, God gets the last word. Not King David. And I walked away with that conviction. And and here's what I realized is that theme, that that truth that Josh shared last week is really going to spill over into the rest of chapter one today. So here's what I'm going to do. This is a narrative, but I I I prefer to preach kind of verse by verse. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say one verse. We're going to pull back and we're going to talk about it. And my prayer is just that God illuminates this text for us. So if you don't already have a Bible open please reopen it to Matthew chapter one. We're going to be in verse 18. Let's just start with that first verse. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, I like to write poetry, I like to write spoken words and perform spoken words. I feel like sometimes Matthew, when I'm reading Matthew, at least this part of it, Matthew's a little dry, you know what I mean? Like He he says these things that are so profound and powerful. Like think about it, Mary's the only person in all of human history ever, ever to have a baby by the Holy Spirit of God. Nobody ever in the rest of human history can ever say that. But Matthew says it like, hey, she has; she had a baby by the Holy Spirit. What's the big deal? But anyways, that's not what stuck out to me. What stuck out to me was the word betrothed. I don't think I've ever heard the word betrothed spoken in everyday uh, conversations. What I hear, what we hear is the word engagement, right? That's, uh, that's kind of the comparison. Some translations actually use the word engagement. But I'm glad that the ESV translation, which we're reading from, used the word betrothed because it's not quite the same thing. Speaking of engagements, doesn't it feel like everybody's engaged at this church? I feel like all you suckers are getting engaged. I feel like people have been married 20 years, somehow just start getting engaged out of nowhere. Speaking of engagement, there is people getting married today. Uh, Andrew and Tiffany that were up here doing the, the, the candle lighting, they're getting married today. Everyone's engaged at this church. Anyways. Um, betrothal versus modern engagement. Even though some translations use engagement, they're really not the same thing. Betrothal, um, I guess if I were to compare it, is much more communal. It's much more high risk. and It's much more committed. Whereas an engagement is much more individual. So think of two people that fell in love, like me and my lovely bride over there in the back of the room. We met each other, eyes locked, and game over. That's all she wrote, we fell deeply in love and we didn't care what our parents said, right? We just, we're like, we're gonna get married. That's how a lot of people view engagement. They make the decision, these two people, and they say, hey, we're gonna get married. And maybe you have a closer relationship with your family where you bring them in, but really, really, it's your decision as two individuals. Betrothal was much different. You had a father and a mother and they had a young daughter and they said, we have to find a husband for our daughter. So they would look out and they would try to find a potential suitor and they would approach this person or this person would approach them and say, hey, do you wanna marry our daughter? The guy would say, yeah, I'm interested. I'm willing to pay this amount of money. I'm willing to give this gift or I'm willing to do this service. If the parents were happy about it, they would say, okay, we're in agreement. Uh, let's go ahead and, and make this a th- thing. That sounds very business transactional. That's just the way it worked back then. So it was much more communal versus individual. High risk, because if things didn't work out, their communities were these small bubbles. They didn't have social media where they can just, you know, have a dating app and they can reach out to a bunch of people. If things didn't work out with this person, it was gonna affect not only these two families, it was gonna affect the whole community that that they were in. They were brought up with these people. Everybody around them, they knew their whole lives, they were probably gonna die in this community. That's how close-knit they were. So if two people didn't work out, it was going to affect them in big ways. Again, betrothal versus engagement. The picture I'm trying to paint is that Mary, this young Jewish girl, she was found to be pregnant while she was betrothed to Joseph. What a scandal that was. This was a scandal, and we love scandals, don't we? We love watching these things and and for us, because engagement is not, it's much more flippant, we're not used to the deep-rooted communal betrothal and commitment that two people had like they did during Mary and Joseph's time. So for a scandal to be occurring during her life as this young, probably teenage girl, it was a huge deal. There was a huge weight on her life. Imagine what Mary is thinking. She knows the script. The angel came to her and told her what God's plan was. But imagine trying to explain that to your mom and dad. An angel came to me, told me that this baby inside me is from God. Mary, you're telling me God didn't speak for 400 years and he came to our town and gave you a baby, Mary, Mary, Imagine trying to explain this to Joseph and his family. And we already know that it probably didn't go too well based on the next couple of verses that we're going to talk about. But, but Mary faithfully trusted God. She faithfully trusted God. And like many of you mothers in this room, including my own wife, I picture Mary looking down at her belly, holding her baby and her heart filling up with the love that only a mother can have. Here's the truth. Mary loved Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. But like I said, we know that not everyone took too kindly or too well to the truth that Mary was found to be pregnant while betrothed to Joseph. And it wasn't Joseph's baby. So let's read verse 19. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to, to, to divorce her quietly. We don't know much about Joseph. The, the scriptures don't give us a whole lot. We know that he was a carpenter because Jesus was referred to as a carpenter's son, wasn't talking about Yahweh, talking about Joseph. He might. Some people think he was probably dead by the time Jesus started his public ministry, And because of that, because they think that he was already gone, they think that he was probably a little older than we would like him to be. You know, maybe that we see portrayed in movies or in pictures, um, which is pretty common during those times. But if he was already passed by the time Jesus turned thirty, he might have been an older guy when him and Mary were betrothed. Not nobody knows. Again, I'm just kind of saying what what some people think. We know he was obedient when God said go, he went. When God said come back. He came back. But what Matthew says is that Joseph was just. And why? Joseph was considered just because he was unwilling to put Mary to shame. Now, here's the kicker Joseph knew Old Testament law, as all Jews did. And Old Testament law said if a woman was found to be pregnant while she was betrothed to another man, And the baby inside of her was not the man she was married to. You were supposed to take that girl to her father's door and stone her to death, murder her, to wipe out the impurity within the community of God. Intense. Now, a lot of people think it's probably unlikely that they would have carried out this type of punishment during Joseph's time. But what has certainly happened Same thing that would happen in our day and age now, which a lot of us soak up again talking about that scandal, is that she would have been ostracized. She would have been shunned, humiliated, labeled as that type of girl. Basically, I don't know if you've read the Scarlet Letter, but she would have had to wear a patch on her for the rest of her days, labeled, condemned. Joseph didn't do either of these things. He didn't say, hey, let's pick up rocks and take her to her dad's house. He didn't say, listen, she needs to go away. She's got to be outside of this community. We have to cancel this girl. He didn't do either of those things. Scripture says that he was just because he was unwilling to put her to shame. Isn't justice one of those buzzwords in our culture today? I feel like every time I see it used, I cringe. Because what I see is I see these two ways that Joseph didn't live out people making choices, saying, oh, you did this, that means you're a fill in the blank. And because you're a this, then I'm gonna condemn you. I'm gonna cast shame on you. You need to be humiliated, called out. I am demanding justice upon you. And we rile ourselves up culturally, demanding this justice, when scripture defines justice as something much, much different. It's either one of two ways, either destruction or cancellation, death or being ostracized. Are we guilty of that? Are we guilty of looking at other people, whether closely in our own lives or people on the TV screen or on social media and casting shame and just wanting them to be called out? If you don't believe me, go to literally any comment thread in any type of social media, it's a nightmare. It's one person after another saying, I cast judgment on you, and I need to declare it, and I want others to join me in that. Think about the way we view celebrities. Think about the way we view politicians. Think about the headlines and all the names that we see, how much we love to look at another person and cast shame on them, and how much we hate when people cast shame on us. But according to God, justice is an unwillingness to put others to shame. We see it even in the garden when God told Adam and Eve, if you take the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And they took that fruit anyways. And what happened when he found out? Did he kill them? Did he destroy them? Did he cast shame on them? He covered their nakedness. Here's my point. True justice does not seek to shame others. And what do we pull out of this verse? Joseph loved Mary. We're starting to see a theme develop. Verse 20. Let's read it together. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I want to take us on a little side road here. I want to fill us with just a little bit of awe, because God filled me with awe when I read this part. Okay, so just just a question. I don't really have an answer. Again, I'm just going to pose this. I'm going to drop it, and then I'm going to pull back, and we're going to get back in the, the main passage. It says that the angel visited Joseph in a dream. Here's my question, what is a dream? Rhetorical, please don't shout out answers. What is a dream? Is it a thought? Can I get in my car and drive to your dream? Can I shrink down like Ant-Man, go into your brain and there's like a little bubble of space and I look around and say, oh, this is, this is a dream here. Like your dream. No. Listen, I know, I'm sure somebody's very smart. Maybe you've done some study on kind of how things work. You say, well, Anthony, see what a dream is, is electricity starts. <laughs> Listen, okay, you're smart. You're smart. I get it. Here's the truth, though, if we're honest. Nobody really knows, right? We know that it's probably just a combination, something going on in our head of our memories and things we've seen on TV and, and shows just kind of creating some weird creatures and events that we're just, we're just along for the ride. Even if we know in our head that it's a dream, even if we're aware, we're not fully in control of it. But what is a dream? It's not space. Like this room here that we're all in, you're looking at me, I'm looking at you. That's not what a dream is. It's not some place that we can go. So how did an angel go into the dream? What does that mean exactly? Anyways, awe. That's what I felt. What is happening here? What is this power of God? Back to the road, back to the main passage. That was just a a little treat. Now, if the angel came came to him in a dream, what does that mean about Joseph? I asked my daughters this yesterday. It means he was asleep, right? Passed out. I don't picture this uh, Frodo Baggins laying under the willow tree with a piece of wheat stalk coming out of his mouth and his hat over his eyes. That's not what's happening with Joseph here. And we know that because of the context of his life. Most likely, he is working himself to keep his mind preoccupied because he's trying to understand what's going to happen with Mary, what's going to happen with his own life. What did his parent think? He's trying to think of all these things, and I imagine him just working on something. I imagine he crashes, passes out from exhaustion, stressed, full of anxiety. Now, most of us, when we're anxious When we're stressed, we can't sleep, right? Joseph, I believe, was past that point. I think he was working hard, and he probably passed out with a hammer in his hand. And there, on the other side of passing out, was an angel. How strange that must have been. What was the first thing that the angel asked or said to Joseph? Do not fear. Last time I got up here to preach was in July, and I mentioned this back then, This is the most common command in all of scripture. Do not be afraid. I feel like you can't preach any sermons because of how often God tells us not to be afraid. Was Joseph afraid of the angel? Probably. Angels are pretty terrifying. If you really read how they're described, he was probably freaking out. Most likely, he was afraid of his circumstances in life. We know that because of what the angel said. He said, Joseph, don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. Here's the thing. Mary probably already explained what the angel told told Joseph. Mary already had this conversation, and because Joseph was still going to move forward with divorcing her, albeit quietly, the angel said, I'm going to tell you to stay with her, follow God. This is God's plan for your life. God didn't have to do that. God could have said, look, Listen, Joseph, I appreciate you being a just man. Thank you for your kindness to my girl, Mary. But deuces, dude. If you want to go, there's a door. Bye. See you later. There was no reason for him to say, listen, go to Joseph in his dream and tell him to stay with Mary. He did not have to do that. God was showing patience. The same way he shows patience to you and I. God doesn't have to do a lot of things that he does. We expect so much from God. We expect him to do this and bless us in this way and give us favor in this. And we get so angry, we can't even sit at a red light without getting angry with God. But God was showing Joseph patience when he didn't have to. Joseph could have left and God could have found some other man to be faithful steward over raising Jesus. But God did not do that. And what do we see here is that God loved Joseph. The verse before that, Joseph loved Mary. Verse before that, Mary loved Jesus. In just three unassuming verses that I'm sure all of us just read right through and didn't even pick up on, we see the all encompassing theme of all of Scripture, which is love. Here's my point love propels the beautiful, overarching, true, and majestic story of God forward. If the gospel is an engine, love is the fuel that drives it forward. It is his love that covered Adam and Eve's nakedness versus destroying them in the garden. It is his love that called Abram from his father's land and gave him a seemingly impossible promise. It is his love that saved Noah from the floodwaters. It is his love that brought Israel out of slavery from Egypt. It is his love that gave the people of Nineveh grace rather than fire. It is his love that chose David, strengthened Samson, and empowered Esther. It is his love that brought Jesus into the world, which we're talking about, and eventually to the cross. And it's it's his love that now permeates through his people, that's us, filling us with his spirit and enabling us to love others so that the gospel can be taken to the ends of the earth. It is his love that we can forgive and serve and teach and study and work and rest and parent and learn. You got to understand that it's by his love that you can even see right now. It's by his love that you can even hear me right now. It's his love that you can sit here in a warm building right now. His love drives the story of the gospel. Verse 21 and 23. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When I ask, or when I say, God with us, what kind of feelings do you get? What do you feel inside, that God is with you? When you think about that, God with us. Just a couple guesses, you probably feel comfort, right? Josh talked about comfort, comfort my people last week probably feel encouraged maybe the idea of God being with us that's a a beautiful thought these ancient Jews on the other hand maybe didn't get the same warm fuzzy feelings that we got that we get today we have Jesus so we think God with us we think Jesus they didn't know that at the time when they thought God with us let me read some scriptures just to paint that picture a little bit more clearly here's Isaiah a prophet of God he saw the face of God, his entire countenance changed. He cried out and said this, Woe is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Job said this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now... My eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Jacob said this, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and he said, How dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God. What a terrifying thought that a holy and pure God would be in the presence of us, wretched sinners, apart from his grace. It is terrifying, petrifying. We could not stand. Even the Jews who knew of the promise, who had the promise of God, when the mountain shook, they said, Moses, go somewhere else. We can't stand before God. We can't be here. In the temple, they had the Holy of Holies, and people did not enter it for fear of death. And that was where the presence of God was said to be. For the ancient Jews to be with God or God with us is not a warm, fuzzy truth as we know it today. But he wasn't just named Emmanuel, God with us. He was named Yeshua, Jesus, which means salvation. And this is the good news. Here's my point. Jesus came not only to be with us, but to save us. Isn't that a beautiful reality? We don't have to be afraid of the presence of God because Jesus saved us. All right, wrapping up. Good on time? Last verse. I will, dude. Verse 24, 25. This is where we're going to end. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let me read that last part again. Just that last part of the the last verse, 25. She had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus. If you and I understood the power and truth of what I just read, we would be on our chairs, dancing like David, undignified, shouting praises to God. I'm guilty of it, too. I'm not just trying to put you on blast. Matthew said something here that should rock our worlds, that turned everything upside down. What he just said right here is the core of everything we trust and believe, it is what gives us comfort and encouragement and what we hold on to in the darkest times of our lives. It is, in other words, an atomic bomb of truth. Now, maybe you're processing just like me. Maybe it just kind of flew right past you. And I get that. We're human, so that's just what's going to happen naturally. So let me just tell a story, and hopefully it, it, it awakens the reality of that truth. And if you want to stand on your chair and shout praises to God, be my guest. When I was a young boy, I uh, grew up in Maryville, 59th and Indian School. That's where I went up until third grade. My parents said, we got to get you out of the ghetto, and they moved us to Peoria after that. Well, during the time that we lived in Maryville, I was terrified of the dark. I could not sleep in my room by myself. I had two younger sisters and my parents, and here's why. And take this with a grain of salt. I was a young, young, Boy, I can only tell you my story, and you could take it or leave it, believe it or not. But I believe it, it. this is what really happened. In that home, I experienced things that I don't think any young child should experience. I'm not referring to abuse or things that maybe many of you have experienced and, and uh, have gone through. But supernatural evil, things I saw, things I felt told my parents. This is what I saw. We did not grow up in a Christian home. I had zero reference towards any kind of spiritual enemy. Nothing. All I had was horror movies, which didn't make it better. It did not make it better at all. That's all I had. Freddy Krueger. That was it. Yeah, some chills. But that's not the worst of it, right? Because it wasn't Freddy Krueger. It's something much, much worse. And I didn't have it as a young six, seven, eight-year-old kid. I didn't know what was going on. I know I was seeing things I shouldn't have feeling things against my body I shouldn't have felt, hearing things I shouldn't have heard. And because of that, I was traumatized. I could not sleep, try to tell adults they thought I was just you know, a kid with an imagination. And so when it became nighttime, I would start breathing heavy, I would start sweating, I would start having panic attacks, and still nobody would believe me. I was really all alone in this trauma that I was experiencing. I was so scared, in fact, that when everyone would go to sleep and I thought they were asleep, I would sneak into my parents' room and try to sleep, and they would wake up and they'd say, hey, you got to get back to your room. Eventually, as embarrassing as it is, they let me sleep on my younger, both my two younger sisters, they let me sleep on the floor from times. They didn't do it all the time, but they would let me sleep there, and finally, I would be able to fall asleep because I was around other people. Most of the time, especially during the summer months uh, when we didn't have school, I would close my room door, turn on as many lights as I could, and I would just stay up all night. I would read. We had a ton of books. We even had a big old fat Catholic Bible. I didn't know really what anything meant. I had pictures in it, so it was nice for me to look at as a kid. Or I would play with my G.I. Joes or Ninja Turtles or something like that. Stay up all night doing that, all night. I can't tell you the comfort and the rest as a little boy, that I felt when I would look out my bedroom window and that first light of the sun shone through. I can't tell you, I felt so much relief in those moments. Every single night, I was so scared. Even in my room with the lights on, I knew it was dark and I knew something else was happening in the dark that I couldn't wrap my little mind around. And I was traumatized and afraid. But when the light of the sun shone through my window, I would finally be able to rest. I was finally at peace. I can't tell you the level of comfort. And in this story, when Mary had given birth to Jesus, that's what's happening. A light has finally shone through the darkness, flooding the darkness, giving us peace, giving us hope, giving us love. That's the reality of what's taking place here at the end of Matthew chapter 1. Jesus came and he was making war. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus God in the flesh making war against the darkness and all things in the darkness. Hey, if you're going to clap, clap, you know what I mean? Come on. An enemy held us captive for many of us still hold us captive, offering flowers given poison. Lures us to murder, theft, lying, abuse. Hatred, but Jesus has come to crush this enemy forever. Advent does begin in the dark, but a light has dawned. And we wait looking forward to the day when darkness will be eradicated forever. Or in other words, it will be put out, which is a weird thing because only lights get snuffed out. But this time, the darkness will be snuffed out forever. As the psalmist says in Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. We wait through heartache and trials and suffering. We wait through pain and confusion and tears. We wait through riots and wars and disease. We wait through loneliness and tears and depression. We wait from dark to dark and light to light. We wait and how, how do we wait? We wait with hope and peace and by love. And why do we wait in that way? She gave birth to a son, and his name is Jesus. And he is coming back. Yes and amen. Come, Lord. Come. Pray with me. Father, your goodness is ever-present. We remember you. We remember every promise, every good deed, every act of love. We remember God, would you put in all of us, even now as we sit, an awe of who you are, an awe of what you've done. Let us not be sleepy Christians, but awaken in our hearts the truth of your goodness and grace, because it is so great. It is so much better than the darkness that surrounds us. And as we wait, would you give us this hope? Would you put peace in our hearts. God, we need you. We need you desperately. We love you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray.